Hi everyone and welcome to a highly anticipated episode from our HPBA podcast team. Today's episode features Dr. Chingwei Zhang. Dr. Zhang is a hepatobiliary surgeon and associate professor of surgical oncology at MD Anderson. Among many roles, he's the department vice chair of clinical operations and program director for the HPB surgery fellowship. Dr. Zhang is an accomplished researcher with interests focusing on multimodality therapy for GI cancers and perioperative quality improvement, including cancer surgery standards, patient-centered opioid reduction protocols, and quality of life measures. Dr. Zhang is a passionate surgical educator and has been widely recognized with numerous teaching awards. In this episode, we discuss multiple topics, including surgical education, quality improvement from the surgeon to institution level, and much more. We hope you enjoy listening as much as we enjoyed the interview. All right, so welcome to the, the next installment of the HPBA podcast. We are absolutely uh, and positively happy to be sh- spending this time with uh, Dr. Chingwei Zong uh, from, from MD Anderson Cancer Center, very familiar to all of us and has trained all of us on this podcast in some way, shape, or form, and is really happy to, to spend some time here with you. So thank you very much, Dr. Zong. Thanks, Dr. Newhook, Vega, Rilin, and Carpenter. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so first thing is really just kind of if you can tell us a little bit of your story, where you trained and how you got to where you are right now. Uh, any interesting highlights along the way? Sure. Um, yeah, so I went to UAB for medical school and residency and came to MD Anderson in 2010 for my fellowship, uh, not knowing what to expect, of course. Uh, I thought Birmingham was a big city, but moving to Houston, of course, was a huge wake up call. But it turned out to be a great place for uh, living and for learning. Um, it was a great fellowship experience. I was actually the first uh, guinea pig for our HPB program after I finished my uh, surgeonc uh, training. And after that, in 2013, I moved to Kentucky, where I had a great time in my first job. I didn't know it'd be my first, uh, in a, uh, first of two jobs, but um, I went there and had a great time working there in surgical oncology. Had great partners, both senior partners and junior partners and did GI surgical oncology there for three years before I was recruited back in 2016 uh, to MD Anderson. And since being here uh, at MD Anderson, um, I've found my niche um, in that when you come to a place at MD Anderson, you're surrounded by a bunch of great surgeons and people, quite frankly, much smarter than I am. And so I had to find a way to contribute. We all have a way we can contribute. And I saw that the people around me were already doing things with mutation status, they were doing post-op pathways, they're doing a lot of other type of um, research. So I found my niche in trying to improve quality, surgical quality in an iterative way. We'll talk about that with the learning health system perhaps. And also looked at the opioid epidemic. Keep in mind it's 2016 when this is a big topic, even as it is now, but certainly a huge topic back in 2016. I just moved from Kentucky where there's a huge opioid problem. So I figured I would address that as a research and quality project. I've been involved with um, fellowship education uh, and it's arguably the most important part of my life professionally because it all starts with uh, the dedication to um, your trainees and the social contract I think we have as academic surgeons to give back. And that really is the main reason I moved back to MD Anderson to try to contribute in some small way to our fellowship. Let's talk a little bit about the fellowship at Anderson, the HPB fellowship and kind of where that's gone and where you see it going over the next few years. So you're, you've become more and more involved in kind of the HPBA and and how these fellowships are um, are governed. 
And if you can kind of give us what you've seen change in your time as program director and kind of what you think the next five, 10 years are going to look like. Sure. I think um, one strength and also a weakness of, of HPV training, the strength is the diversity. The weakness is the lack of, I think, homogeneity in agreeing on what is required to be an HPV surgeon. Um, as you all know, you can come to being an HPV surgeon in many tracks, and you only need a fellowship, quite frankly. And so it's still hard to define what it is that HPVA really wants. Yeah, sure, on paper, there's a certain number of minimum cases, experiences, and now there'll be EPAs through the Fellowship Council. But I think that each program will still have its own flavor. And I think that's okay. You know, I think depending on what kind of job that you may know you will have or may think you will get, um, you would go to a program that would offer that. You know, for example, if you know you will go to a program that requires transplantation, then of course you'd probably go to a two-year uh, HPV program that includes transplant. You wouldn't necessarily come to our program that has two months of transplant, right? If you um, enjoy doing pancreatitis, then you would not come to our program. But if you have a strong inclination to oncology, then a program such as ours and a few others would be probably more toward uh, what you're interested in. So I think it's nice to have that, um, I think, individuality to the programs. But base case, we do have to all agree on what is the minimum amount that everybody has to have in terms of shared knowledge. I think that really gets down to the heart of um, a big conversation that is being had at some of the highest levels, which is you know, really what defines an HPV surgeon and how to train for it. Of course, there's heterogeneity in jobs, but what is the core, you know, the core skills that make someone be able to say that they are an HPV surgeon? Yeah, I think it's um, two things. One, of course, everybody understands is decision-making. Um, I think anybody with modern instruments can cut through the pancreas or the liver. The question is whether you should be doing that. So decision-making is key. I think multidisciplinary management of both benign and um, uh, oncologic um, lesions uh, is paramount in the teaching that we give. And I think that's one of the things we've been focusing on in our HPV Grand Rounds, for example, the monthly Grand Round series that we've really switched from, I think in the past, a little bit on the show and tell side, hey, look at my SMA uh, resection I did to now hopefully more on when should we do arterial resection, when we should we do venous resection, things like that. So I think the thinking part is the most important common denominator. There will always be a need for technical teaching within HPV. That is, you know, at the most objective le level. The other part is subjective knowledge, I would say a little bit. Your ability to think, integrate, and work as a team in HPV. But the objective part is something that every hospital asks of an HPV surgeon. Are you technically able to accomplish these larger operations? And that's where the case numbers and index numbers were, uh, are slightly arbitrary, just like in CGSO, there's certain numbers you have to meet, but um, something we'll have to discuss over time as things evolve. Things we've integrated into our uh, minimum case minimums include more minimally invasive surgery, targeting using ultrasound. So that's been a shift over the past 10 years because um, Dr. Breland was asking that. I think that um, one thing we have to really think about though is you know how many uh, major hepatectomies are required. Right now, we still require a certain number of major hepatectomies, but there's more and more parenchymal sparing surgery, right? Are we encouraging people to do majors just to meet their numbers when really a parenchymal sparing surgery is more appropriate? That's something we have to ask aloud. But if you look at the other side of things, 
you can't graduate HPV and do five right hepatectomies. That's an inappropriately low number. I don't know what the right number is, but I know that five is probably too low because you have to be able to do it when you have to do it. But you probably shouldn't be doing right hepatectomies when you can get by with four partial hepatectomies, for example. What about um, what about the amount of time that it takes to achieve certain metrics in, in training? Right. Is it does it need to be a sliding scale, so to speak, or um, is it the same for everybody? Um, especially as we introduce more and more and more novel techniques and technologies uh, in, that we try to cram into what has been an unchanged for the most part amount of time required to train as an HPV surgeon. Um, where do you see that going forward? Yeah, I think that the old school way is to turn in a piece of paper with a number of cases you did. And we, we, we have that as a minimum so that we can have, again, going back to the word homogeneity among all the programs, some kind of this common bar that we have to jump across. But uh, it's going to go to two things. To, to test your brain is going to be the EPAs and oral boards, I think. That's the only way that we'll be able to prove that you know at least the minimum. Otherwise, we're just entrusting program directors who all of us have a bias to graduate our people, right? Um, so you have to be careful about that bias. And number two, on the technical side, video assessment. Um, we, we're gonna have to assess videos, both open and minimally evasive to see quite frankly, whether or not you can do the operation. And that's not some kind of magically advanced thing. If you think about it, it's been already published in the state of Michigan, right? Where you're able to just watch the best video a surgeon turns in. Like they can turn in the best one they wanna turn in and you can judge whether or not they're a good surgeon or not, an unedited video. So I think that'd be very easy to do. We already record cases that some of y'all know here, even our open cases, and we give it to the fellows to um, watch their own operations. It's useful for starting a rotation because I can show the previous videos from the previous rotation, and it's good on rotation so you can watch yourself operate and make adjustments. I mean, who's gonna watch those though? I mean, who's the, it's like, who's the judge of the truth? Right. right. I mean, uh, who's going to spend the time to watch, you know, how many 50, 60 unedited Whipples per year um, to make that judgment or, you, you know, what I'm trying to say. And then also there's a lot of bias in even the people who are watching it to say whether that's the way they would have done it. Or so to some extent, it makes sense to me that 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 is actually supposed to be our job as educators to say that, you know, these people have are meeting the bar and we're teaching, you know, it, it just seems like we're kind of passing the buck, so to speak, and just centralizing it. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a very good point. I don't know who will be the final adjudicator <laughs> and it could be, um, I mean, as a panel, no different than who decides um, that I pass the oral boards for American Board of Surgery, right? Why, why does people in the hotel room are the ones who decided how well I responded to that stress environment, right? So at least with the video, you can still turn in, you know, your, your, your work your best work and kind of people can judge if you can use the right angle and the right tissue planes, if you're you know, being delicate with the tissues. This is, of course, on top of your program director's uh, assessment, which is the most important. But again, there's bias in a program uh, director's assessment. Um, uh, uh, can you uh, tell us about uh, your teaching strategies and how you tailor those teaching to different, you know, different audience. I don't know if you have, you may have uh, just not, you, I think you have some resident over there, but yeah. mostly fellow, but how do you teach fellow that come from different background and, 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 and how's your process? 
Yeah, I think that I've experienced teaching medical students, residents, and fellows, uh, medical students and residents at my previous job uh, through the medical, medical school and through the residency and fellows here. And you have to adjust to the level and what they're specifically interested in, right? So obviously a medical student is gonna be uh, a lot of um, more encouragement of you know, trying to get them to just open their mind to see what surgery could be. As a resident, you're already a surgeon. So now you're trying to take what skill level they're at and everybody's at a different level and try to push them to the next level. Fellowship is the highest level. And here we should aim for excellence. There's a word here, excellence. So it's funny nowadays in surgical education, everybody's looking for the letter A for autonomy. But the letter we should be looking for is E, which is excellence. I can, this is a joke I always told that. So, so recently um, I was um, going to a school event at our middle school, this is a few months ago. And I didn't know this back way to get to our school. So I'm driving my wife, in my family, but she's telling me turn by turn where to go in the car. Did I have autonomy because I was taking the steering wheel? No, she had the autonomy, she knew where to go. So autonomy is not necessarily who has the right angle in their hands or who is sitting at the console. It is about who is, is the GPS, who has a mental GPS to know where we're going with the surgery. And so I think that's what I'm trying to teach our fellows. Whether I'm handling the right angle or you're handling the right angle, you need to be talking and directing traffic and knowing where we'd be going on the next step. The other thing I talk about, um, Dr. Vega, about you know, what I'm looking for philosophically is the only difference between a faculty and a trainee, besides maybe being a, a couple years or many years older, is um, knowing that how to take off the airplane and land the airplane. Think about this for a second. When you were younger, you were so excited in residency to open a case and get things started. The, the attending might give you an hour to, to get started and see what you could do. But you knew after an hour, somebody's gonna come in here and rescue you and finish the operation and land the airplane. But the key as an attending, and I think all of y'all can attest to this now, is that the night before the surgery, the day of the surgery, you're imagining in your brain how this case is gonna go. It's just like an athlete imagines how their game is going to go. It may not turn out exactly like that, but they've imagined how the whole game will play out. Well, you've imagined how this whole flight's going to go. Yeah, there might be turbulence in the middle. You may have to make some adjustments, but you've already planned this whole thing out and you've, plan you've planned on how to land this airplane. And I think that's the main difference that we want to teach people, that it's not just steps one, two, and three. It's like, do you have every single step? One final thought is that, you know, on our evaluations, we always get asked about situation awareness and focus. And you think about that, it's kind of a, at first you thought, oh, wow, is that kind of a silly question? Who wouldn't be focused? But there are times you'll notice that, you know, you as an attending, you're really staring into, into the abdomen or staring right into the console and you're just focused 100%. That's why your eyes are so tired at the end of the operation. And sometimes people are just taking a break, their hands are relaxed on the Thompson retractor. And I, like, you're wondering what is going on here? Like, that is, it's not 99% situational awareness and focus, it's 100% the entire time. And going from that 99% to 100% is the difference between a very high level fellow and a faculty. And so that takes just time and training and just really that uh, over and over repetition on, and aiming for excellence. 
I have another question. It's a little bit of a change in gears, but I think you have a little bit of a unique perspective on this HPB fellowship question because you're a one-year HPB fellowship at a cancer center where the majority of your trainees have already done surgeon. So, you know, within the world of CGSO, there's discussion about earlier subspecialization. You know, does the HPB guy, girl really need to do two months of breast? Um, do you have an opinion on that? And kind of where do you see that going? We talked, we interviewed Dr. Visser very recently, and he talked about this a little bit that, you know, at some point, CGSO may have to deal with the idea that you're, you know, you're not truly going to be a general surgical oncologist, but people are going to start subspecial subspecializing early. Um, how do you see that going? And then, uh, you know, as far as Dr. Newha kind of talked about the time, right? Yours is a one-year fellowship, but the presumption is that those one-year fellows have already done a couple of years and, are, you know, they certainly don't need more than one year. But if the HPBA says, well, you have to do a two-year fellowship unless, you know, you're attached to CGSO, there's got to be some caveat there where like MD Anderson's not going to have to do a two-year HPB fellowship. And so I'm just curious how you see all that intermingling kind of working out in the future. Yeah, I think that um, there's always going to be the case for a core curriculum, I'll call it, in CGSO. Again, those numbers that were created in the first iteration of CGSO are, are from the first, the initial initiation of um, the CGSO program, right? And that hasn't changed those numbers. But I think that if you want to be called a surgical oncologist, even though you may be, quote unquote, an HPV surgical oncologist, you have to so know a certain amount of knowledge about melanoma and other disease sites because it's all tied together. It's all cancer care. It's all about understanding tumor biology, not just the technical. Yes, could you probably knock off a few you know, fluff months that are in there? And I have my thoughts on how many fluff months are in CGSO, right? There's seven non-surgical months in, out of 24, and that should be cut down in my opinion. Um, yeah, those could be used to tailor your, um, your fellowship to be more you know, HPV or sarcoma or whatever you want. You should give more freedom to the fellows, I think. In terms of you know one-year programs, we try to make our one-year program able uh, able to be used for anybody even out of uh, residency because we've had people come straight out of residency even without a previous fellowship. Um, but yeah, you're right that a one-year fellowship needs to be the ideal candidate who is truly ready on August first. There's no you know time for messing around for two months to kind of get integrated to see how you feel like you you only then you only have ten months left over so really is a tough job. It's not like CGSO where I have to admit it took me six months just to warm up to figure out what I was doing, you know? So I think you have a much tougher job as a fellow in one year to get trained. Dr. Tung, you spoke a second ago about achieving excellence. Um, you know, for the trainees, do you have advice on how you get there as a resident and fellow? So focus certainly, but what else makes an excellent fellow? How do you get there as a resident? I think it's all about um, how much time you put in in uh, preparation and also thinking about what you did that day or that week. You know, that's hard in residency, you have to admit, um, because in residency, you know, as a senior resident, you're not just um, worrying about yourself, you have to worry about all the people who are, you know, below you in rank, which is the medical students, the interns, and figure out if they showed up to cover this case or that case. So your mind is very distracted, and sometimes you feel like you're getting through the case. Fortunately, I think in fellowship, you have a little bit more time to concentrate just on your patients you're taking care of, or maybe a few that you're cross-covering or whatnot, and you really have time to reflect. And I think it is important to reflect and really extract that maximum value. You know, why do I use the word excellence? Because I think we should all aim for that. We're already a self-selected population in HPV surgery, surgical oncology. 
and our patients deserve us aiming for excellent. I'm not saying that we're perfect. That would be ridiculous to assume that, but rather we should aim for that. The, the most insidious word in, in surgical education is the word competency, right? So competencies are everywhere, right? And sure, uh, that's appropriate for residency to be competent to you know various uh, um, areas within general surgery training. But once you go into a specialty fellowship, then you're reaching for excellence, not competency anymore. Uh, so I think that's why we have to change the wording. Sure, the A for autonomy is important because you're gonna be attending one day, but um, I would be careful about just seeking a place that hands you the right angle on day one and rather go to a place that's gonna teach you to be the best surgeon you can be. So uh, Dr. Seng, can you mention something about how you can teach technical skill in the operating room? We kind of forget about, you know, uh, how how is to be consistent and how you place your stitches? How is to be, you know, how when it looks good, most likely it's gonna go well. You know, we have all, all of us has a different way to do it, but we all trying to do it well. That gives it uh, some time to the fellow, to the resident, the idea that you can do whatever you want. Yeah, I think that um, technical technical skill obviously is probably the majority of the determination of how the patient does. I don't know what the percentage is, but you could rank preoperative planning uh, and preparation, like uh, prehab and getting them nutritionally ready and all that, and counseling, intraoperative performance and in post-operative uh, enhanced recovery. Post-operative enhanced recovery will do quite a bit, in my opinion, to augment the recovery, but you cannot uh, use ERAS to erase bad surgery, right? Um, and technical skills in surgery, um, and specifically what you're talking about is suturing, is paramount. Um, I have to say in HPV, we do a lot of suturing, right? And there's a lot of surgery nowadays, general surgery, that's a lot of energy device surgery and things like that, and I think, and stapling, and so suturing sometimes goes away. I think sometimes when there's bleeding issues, the attending will take over and suture a lot of it. So I think as an attending, we have to think about when is it okay for the fellow or the trainee at whatever level to be fixing the bleeder or when it's more serious and you just need to take over. And that's something you learn over time. Early on in your career, I would highly advise you just fix the suturing yourself and not waste 100 cc's of blood. Um, but as time goes on, if you see that there's a minor bleeder and that even though it may ooze another 50 to 75, if you let the fellow take a little bit longer to suture, they need to experience how to put the 6-0 stitch in instead of you just taking it over just to stop the bleeding and move on to the next thing. So I think it's important as an attending that you let them experience the stress of putting these small sutures in. Uh, I think in terms of anastomotic technique, the main thing that I convey to the fellows is that we don't leave the operating room till we feel very good about it. Okay is not okay. Okay is not okay. We have to feel great about the operation. We have to feel great about that. If the sutures don't look quite perfect, they're not aligned like you want it, scissors, cut it out and do it again. That extra 20 or 30 minutes in the operating room to fix something can save a patient weeks, if not months of misery. So it's important that you um, feel very good about your anastomosis and not worry about what time it is on the clock. Like, oh no, well, it's already so late. Let's just take this as it is. One of the main things I remember is you telling me is you can't eras your way out of blank surgery. So we'll move on from that. <laughs> but speaking of which, and maybe in a little bit of the same vein, um, I'd like to move on and talk a little bit about your, and I know the answer, but your approach to quality improvement and getting to that E you speak of, which is excellence. 
and something that you really taught all of us on this podcast um, about, at least individually, is using the power of the learning healthcare system model of of, of uh, research and applying that in not so much bench to bedside, but truly research and making it to bedside and back. So I'd love to get started on a conversation about that with some of your initial thoughts on that, and then we'll go from there. Yeah, the learning health system, for those who are not familiar with this fancy word, is just simply going through a cycle of analyzing your outcomes, figuring out what you're going to do about it, making some interventions, implementing them, and then assessing them. Almost everybody does that in some degree, right? You have a lot of quality improvement papers out there, or even this internally quality improvement where you try to do something one time through. But what is often not done is repeat and do the whole thing over again. Because you can't, it's hard to reassemble the band, put the band back together. It's hard to get the time and resources like, hey, we already knocked down our length of stay from 10 to 7. That's awesome. Why push it from 7 to 6? Why push it 6 to 5? Same thing, I got my fistula, uh, risk down, uh, excuse me, fistula rate down from this percentage to this percentage, pretty good. I'm below the national average already. I'm better than this whip. Well, how much better could you be? So I think you can borrow all kinds of analogies from uh, engineering background, because my major was chemical engineering in college, uh, where you can always milk efficiency out of every cycle. Every oil refinery tries to get more and more efficiency out of each cycle when they analyze their uh, output. You can use a sports analogy. Everybody's trying to always get better with their batting average or earned run average. Uh, so same thing in, in medicine. We have to improve technically. That goes back to the video assessment and just talking with your faculty about how you can get better and better with each operation, not just do the same operation. And in terms of the research, what Dr. Newhook's talking about is um, our enhanced recovery pathways or opioid reduction protocols. Can you, can you talk a bit um, about how you did that before you were at Anderson? Because I think at Anderson, you know, there's a lot of resources like you guys have a APP who very specifically like builds all this database for you and, and those things. It's not that, you know, I'm not trying to belittle it, but I think it's hard to do outside of, uh, of the Mecca like that. And so when you were at Kentucky, yeah. what were your resources and how did you do that? Yeah, well, you work with people who are very eager to improve, which is the residents. All residents, by definition, if you're a general surgery resident, you're highly motivated, you're highly intelligent, and you want to make the patients get better. And so I borrowed things I learned from fellowship and jotted down. Um, at first, it was this table of um, every iteration of what could happen to a person and came up with a pathway. Then I wrote it down just in a Word document that looks very similar to our pathways when I came back in 2016. And so you can do that locally. And I gave that to each resident um, during orientation of their first day on rotation from the medical students all the way to the chief residents. So you can do that on the local level. If you don't have money for a database manager, there's ways to um, do that with residents helping or there's always eager medical students with the medical school. And we had a graduate uh, assistant who was an MD in another country who wanted to do some extra research. So there's always um, a, a way to, to make this happen. Can you talk about this uh, phrase that I also hear from you? Um, don't wait a hundred percent agreement when you do all those modifications, and, and, and I think it's it, it's something that resonates a lot because you 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 come to the meeting, propose the changes, and certainly we'll have people who will say, you know what, I'm doing fine, my surgery is just perfect. Stop bothering me. Yeah, that's a good point. So Dr. Vega makes a point that I always say when it comes to making these um, agreements on pathways or, or anything in life for medicine, 
you don't necessarily need to have 100% agreement. For example, you don't need to have a fight over whether they use Reglan or not after a Whipple procedure. Well, I might use it. I don't need to hold that against another partner who doesn't want to use it. So out of the 100 orders that go in after a Whipple procedure, 90% of them are pre-checked on our EPIC order list and 10% are not checked but are suggested. Now, this started with an 80% agreement back in 2016. And over time, as we start convincing people that you know it's okay to remove NG tube sooner, start your diet earlier, the agreement gets better and better. And now that we're on our fourth pathway, just since 2016, um, the last um, document that we circulated in June of 2022 had, I think, three or four track changes. That's it. Because we've come to so much agreement over time. Uh, so, and that all happened because we didn't force anybody to do anything. We came to about 80% agreement early on and said, hey, let's try it out. Let's look at it again. And that's the thing about the learning health system. It's not rocket science. It's just about being open-minded to see if something will work and going back to the table uh, um, the next year or 18 months later. We, the, I'm really excited that we're doing this now uh, at a few other institutions um, that are outside MD Anderson uh, who are using these pathways. And I've been advising them, again, that you don't need 100% agreement on every single point. Don't get into fights about things that are not important. But the key is to collect your data, right? I mean, yes. you can't just say 80% people need to agree on or 80% of the components agree on it and then just send it out there and never yeah. address it again, right? It's true. You, oh. have to, you, have to, you have to collect the data. So when you're collecting this data and, and we find, as a team, we all go through it, um, the key is to also agree on regular interval follow-ups for iterations. Yes. So you can have four four pathway iterations, as Dr. Zong mentioned, in 25 years, right? <laughs> or you can, you know, agree as a team to to continuously um, evaluate this data and analyze it. So, so how have you gone about getting that part of the agreement and, and team together? Because you know, quite honestly, I'm even part of this team, and it's something that you know you do well and mystically bring together. Yeah, I think um, it seems right to every year or 18 months um, to re-review your data. And I think all surgeons, we love data, but the hardest data to look at is your own. <laughs> so nobody likes to look in the mirror and kind of see their own complications. So, but I think it's part of what we have to do. If we really want to get better, we have to watch our own videos. And at first, it's kind of scary to see yourself operate, <laughs> but uh, eventually you get used to it. And same thing with your data. You're like, wow, I guess my complication rate isn't zero. I thought it was zero. <laughs> so, um, and then you look at it as a composite, as a team, because I think it's important to look at individuals. You can make individual changes, but it's also important to look at it as a team because ultimately we win as a team and we lose as a team. And so it's important to look at both the composite and your own. Uh, and I think one year to 18 months seems very reasonable. So you're not doing it every month. Nobody's gonna do that. You don't wait five years like you're suggesting to look at it again, it's too late to make interventions. You'll forget what you were trying to do. Can you uh, talk a little bit for maybe like the residents and maybe some community surgeons and things like that? What what have you taken away from the last three or four iterations? Like, what do you think you're doing now that you that people aren't doing out in the community that you think makes a big difference? You talked about NG tubes a little bit and things yeah, like that. Yeah. So um, if you imagine, um, a patient's enhanced recovery, which should be really a standard recovery now, um, it's all about 
first removing the brakes, removing the governor on the um, accelerator. So remove the brakes and then push the accelerator. So uh, what do I mean by that? What were the brakes holding people back early on? The brakes would be NG2 for a long time, um, not ambulating. So these are things that are holding a person back um, and IV fluids and not giving food instead. So these are holding it back. And then you put on some accelerators after you remove the brakes. Don't put on an accelerator with the brakes still on. So you do the accelerators next. The accelerators are pro-motility agents, aggressive bowel regimen. Um, these are things that you might say, well, you're getting a little crazy doing bowel regimen on day two and making them have bowel movement. But ultimately we do GI surgery. What is the number one reason people stay in the hospital? They're waiting for a $2,000 bowel movement. So <laughs> if you get that moving along, they'll, they'll get discharged earlier, right? A two thousand dollar bowel movement might be my new favorite phrase. I've never heard that before. <laughs> Could you talk to her about something that maybe you changed in your personal practice, as in the you know in response to your retrospection? Um, I think the main thing I've probably learned is um, probably from my senior partners, um, like uh, the ones who trained me. You can say Dr. Fleming, Dr. Katz, Dr. Bote, Dr. Aloya, and there's others I haven't named is paying attention to every detail in the operating room. And I mentioned this earlier, but you know, when you're training as a fellow, you realize how much work it takes to get um, great outcomes. And it's not by some accident. And I know this sounds like a broken record, but things have to go very well in the operating room. You cannot do something poorly in the operating room and somehow think postoperatively some sort of medication or some kind of enhanced recovery will fix that. And so that's what I learned from my mentors. Um, about about that. I also learned um, that you have to, you're, you're gonna be a hybrid of your faculty who taught you, but I always tell my, my um, fellows now this, you're gonna have to be 80% like one or two people. You can't be 5% times 20 faculty, otherwise you'll be like locked in like a mental state of anguish in the operating room, <laughs> which 5% should I use today, right? So you have to be 80%, one or two faculty, like you kind of, hey, this I'm going to do my pancreatic surgery like this person mostly, and then 20% from the other faculty you worked with. Same thing with liver, you have a baseline way of doing things, and the other 20% are things you borrowed. But if you have this model, uh, which is what I've done myself, you theoretically can be the best of all of them. And I hope that each generation, I hope that all my fellows are better than I am. I, I can see that personally. I, I know that, you know, New Hook is here at, and I see that he's better than what I can do because he's able to learn not just from me, but from people around around him. And so each generation should be better. They should not be equal. They should be better. So it'd be 40 bucks later. <laughs> well, um, I, that is completely true uh, that Dr. Zong uh, is paying attention to literally every last detail in the operating room. I remember one time I yawned under my breath thinking no one... <laughs> Here, Dr. Zong said, Dr. Newhook, you need to get more sleep. <laughs> that was the 99% situational awareness and focus. I was talking exactly right. with the yawn. I subtracted 1%. On your Can you, uh, so on that, just to kind of close out that topic, you've been a big proponent of, uh, of low opioid use. And I think I learned a lot from you in the two years at Anderson where, like, we used to, use this order set that just had 30 Percocet or whatever it was, and nobody to put any thought into it. And I think that was just the way things were done, you know, in that kind of 2010 to 2015 era where pain was the vital, the fifth vital sign or whatever it was. 
And so I think, you know, you've done a lot of work on that. Can you just kind of briefly summarize your thoughts on that topic? Yeah, I mean, as you know, there are billions and billions of dollars spent on um, trying to reduce the opioid epidemic in the United States. And certainly surgeons are not the ones passing L-fentanyl, but we play a, a decent role, pretty large role in prescribing the first prescription to a lot of patients in terms of their exposure. And this dissemination of opioids goes beyond just the patient themselves. There's something called diversion. Diversion means the pills going to their friends or family or community if it's stolen or lost or whatnot. So the community diversion is just as bad as the personal dependence. And um, so the easiest way to prevent that diversion and community dissemination is simply to prescribe less. Now, we can't just restrict opioids and make a patient suffer. The patient comes first. So it has to be a patient-centered opioid reduction protocol. And uh, so what we've done over time is come up with these four pillars. Um, and it's pretty simple to remember. Uh, pillar number one is the preoperative education. A lot of times we focus on what your fissure rate will be, but instead we should be talking about how your recovery will be and how you wanna get you off opioids. Number two is to reduce the huge ramp up in oral morphine equivalents being used in the first 24 hours, often by the PCA. The third thing is accelerated weaning, getting them weaned down to zero or near zero uh, within the hospitalization, which I must admit is harder and harder as we compress the hospital stay to only three or four days, right? You have to wean them very quickly, but purposefully. And fourth is probably the easiest for anybody trying to pick up on this message is a standardized discharge protocol. And there's, there's two ways to do it. Uh, one is based on what operation they did. You could say like every colon surgery requires this many, every pancreas surgery needs this many, but we prefer a patient-centered 5X multiplier. So you just take the number of pills they used in the last 24 hours and multiply it by um, five. So you use two pills, five times two, 10 pills out the door. Here's the beauty of the 5X. If you use zero, five times zero, of course, is zero. So one problem, as you were noting before, is that people who are weaned down to zero, we're still getting 30 or 40 pills out the door. The other thing we found is that a lot of people are scared of, um, you know, getting refills if we um, give them less opioids. And that found that's not true. You actually don't increase the uh, opioid refill rate uh, by using less opioids. Don't forget, we're not giving them nothing. They're still getting three non-opioids. You're getting acetaminophen, you're getting Celebrex, and Robaxin, right, muscle relaxer. So they're getting three non-opioids scheduled around the clock for one month. So it's not as if they're getting no pain medicine. The final thing we noted is that not only are they not getting more refills, which is good, there's no, no reflexive increase, but the refills they get are smaller. So, so Newhook and I joke about, uh, this is called a soda fountain effect, right? If you get a huge 32 ounce cup, you're gonna get a refill of 32 ounces on your way out the door. So if you get a 40 pill prescription of uh, whatever opioid, if you can make a phone call to the on-call person, they're going to give you 40 because it matches 40. But they saw in the discharge summary that you only required 10, you're only five or six days out, you might've run out. So they're going to give you five or 10, not 40. So it's a smaller cup, smaller refill. And that's made a big difference in terms of the total 30-day use. Put it this way, um, our pancreatic surgery now, we used to give out the equivalent of 40 to 50 pills uh, back in 2016. And our median discharge now for pancreatectomy is zero, median. Interquartile range, zero to 25. So it's not just like a few people benefiting. Interquartile range, zero to 25. And, um, and that's uh, pretty amazing if you think about the type of surgery. And these are pancreatic you know, uh, surgery patients who you thought who would never be able to get off opioids.
And I am unfortunately not paid by the company, but I think Robaxin was a revelation to me too. I'd never really used that, but I think adding the muscle relaxer, it just may, seems to make a huge difference. And I've noticed that in my own patients as well. Yeah, we're, we're, we use uh, acetaminophen in 99% of patients, um, 99% get um, the methocarbamol or Robaxin, mm-hmm. and about 77% get the Celebrex. There's usually, there's sometimes an odd reason or not to hold the Celebrex if they have some mild creatinine elevation or whatnot. So what's next? So, so now we have a median after pancreatectomy of zero. Mm-hmm. What's next um, in terms of dissemination of this knowledge and, and practice? I mean, it's pretty cool that we're, we're doing this here. Um, I think there's a lot of other great work being done by other groups that trying to decrease, you know, or at least have a tailored opioid prescribing approach. Where do you, where do you see this going forward? Yeah, we want to make this externally valid or generalizable. Uh, so we want to do this uh, across other institutions. Um, they can be single institutions, but ideally if we can create a collaborative either in the University of Texas system or in the MD Anderson Cancer Network or in other institutions that are willing to partner with us to try to create a model in which we can um, roll out this uh, opioid reduction protocol. This is free. That's what's amazing about this. Like, I think, you know, when we publish stuff like this, I try not to get people even though it's pretty cool to say median to zero, you don't need to aim for zero. That's kind of crazy. We don't need to aim for that. I, I think it's more important to understand the process of how you can get yourself down from 40 to 50 pills to zero, uh, all for free. All right? None of this is any kind of fancy molecular testing or anything like that. It's all about patient counseling, provider education to us faculty, the APPs, the trainees who order a lot of the medications, um, and then following the rules of accelerated weaning and following the rules of the standardized discharge process. So that's what's, I think, amazing about this learning health system process is that this is this part, the opioid part, is free. Is this something that you talk about with your patients, opioid reduction? Is it just, at this point, standard in your practice? Yeah, we still talk about it. As part of our patient education in clinic, um, we hand them our pathways and it's kind of color coded. So it's easy for us to say what color, blue, green, whatever. Uh, so the nurses know which color to hand them in terms of the piece of paper. And then uh, that's for the pathway. And then for the opioid reduction, we have a pain management sheet that um, we had our institution approve. It has to be written, as you know, at a certain grade level uh, so people can understand it, but explains everything what acetaminophen is all the way to what an opioid is. Things that you might assume everybody knows, but you should never make that assumption, right? And also allows us to have a piece of paper to circle and say, which one should you wean first? Because if you don't explain that to them, you get three non-opioids and then you get, for example, tramadol. They may be weaning the non-opioids and keeping tramadol because you gave them this huge bolus of papers and don't even know where to start with what paper to read. So you have to make sure you mark that out. Trials that are getting going. Uh, I know you're doing some interesting things with, with Y90 and uh, looking at that versus PBE. So can you talk to us a little bit about the trial that you have going and, and how that's going to get started? And, yeah, uh, so this is regarding uh, bilateral colorectal liver meds. As you know, Y90 is like one of the technologies where the horse is out of the barn already, where it's already being used all over the place. And um, the dosage has not been agreed upon. It's just given uh, in place of uh, portal vein embolization, for example, to the right liver to hypertrophy the left liver but with unknown doses. There's even talk in some co- cooperative groups I know about using doing a trial of portal vein embolization versus Y90. However, 
that would be saying, let's compare aspirin to a new antiplatelet agent without agreeing to what dose of antiplatelet agent you would use. So our trial is a Bayesian design um, phase one study to do a dose escalation of um, three different doses, 60, 80, and 100 gray of Y90 uh, to check the uh, two things, the liver toxicity in terms of the bilirubin, but specifically the clinical information we want to get out of it is the kinetic growth rate. I think most people on this podcast are familiar with the kinetic growth rate, and that's from portal vein embolization. Usually checked at four to five weeks after portal vein embolization. You're looking for a 2% plus kinetic growth rate, uh, which is determined by Dr. Vote's study group. But we don't really know what the kinetic growth rate is supposed to be for Y90. Some people measure it you know, six weeks later. Some people measure it 12 weeks later, saying it continues to work. But I don't know that everybody wants to wait 12 weeks necessarily to do the second stage surgery. So the point of this study is to try to figure out, number one, safety of the different doses, and number two, to figure out what is a good uh, kinetic growth rate. So you, once you've sort of decided this dose, where do you see this being applied in your practice? So I think that uh, then we would bring it to a multi-center group to um, do a trial versus portal vein embolization. And I think in this regard, um, it would be looking at two things. You would look at, of course, hypertrophies, which is the only way to have a direct um, objective thing. But the other um, endpoint to look at would be uh, tumor control, right? Portal vein embolization and hepatic vein embolization don't have tumor control technically, while uh, Wynati potentially could. So that's the one po possible uh, advantage. In the context of a two-stage hepatectomy, you know, obviously the one of the biggest knocks is, and part of the reason for the rise of ALPS is dropout between stages and um, progression of disease. Whereas we can have an argument about what type of progression and where that is, you know, in terms of whether dropout is a bad thing or what. But um, clearly, we know that, P, as you said, PVE works in the liver hypertrophies. So um, specifically, when you say tumor control. What do, you, what do you mean by that? Where do you see if we find the best dose for Y90 and it's equivalent at least to PVE, where do you see this fitting into the algorithm and which patients would you be counseling to maybe have a Y90-based approach, um, specifically within a two-stage hepatectomy, I guess, compared to traditional uh, hepatic venous or portal venous embolization techniques? Yeah, I think people who have pretty heavy disease on their right... so. There's two reasons, as you know, that people might need uh, a full right hepatectomy. One is just simply anatomic because they're on the glossonian pedicle. Uh, other is because they truly have bulky disease, could be both, I guess. Um, and the Y90 would perhaps uh, help control um, those who have pretty bulky disease from getting more advanced and advancing during that short time off on that right side. Also, theoretically, you could be trading one problem for another. Uh, the Y90, if you give a super high dose, can have some diaphragmatic um, reaction. But from our limited experience on that, um, you know, we've done cases where we did PVE followed by Y90 as rescue. Um, it's not that bad. It's actually uh, could be an okay trade-off because, you know, portal vein embolization has a desmoplastic reaction uh, along the portal vein. So maybe you have less desmoplastic reaction in the portal vein and trade it for diaphragm. And in my opinion, that's an okay trade-off. One kind of just minor question: What do you do with segment four now? If you're like if you have if you have some disease in segment four, do you think that's more PVE? Or are you going to have uh, an algorithm where you'll do right and segment four Y ninety? 
Yeah, right now, our, uh, that's a good question. Right now, we're just doing pure right-sided hemi liver Y90 because we don't want to accidentally deliver too much radiation to the, to the left liver segment four, especially if you're not doing a true trisectionectomy and you may only be carving to the left side of the middle hepatic vein. You don't necessarily, I don't really know what you would do carving through um, a treated Y90 area, if that'd be a bad thing to leave with some ischemia there or not. So I wouldn't risk that right now. So yeah. that is a major problem, you know? So I think when you have tumors in segment four, you should perhaps try to clear some of them. My cutoff is, if it's kind of halfway through segment four toward the falciform, I'll go ahead and try to clear it. If it's really right on the middle hepatic vein, I'll leave it for the second stage. If it's touching the gallbladder, I will not resect it. But if it's segment four B off the gallbladder, I'll go ahead and resect it um, just to clear it. With PVE and hepatic vein embolization, uh, we have a pretty good estimate of uh, how it's going to grow, right? Um, but came to an outsider of MD Anderson, I, I, I realized that patient that I actually sent to PVE, they progress more than I was expecting from the experience I had before in MD Anderson. Um, that mean maybe because the timing of chemotherapy are, you know, timing are different. Um, maybe because PBE, um, they're not quite exactly how they were, uh, they were doing it in, in, in MD Anderson. But I think Y90 may have a role avoiding progression of those patients with high tumor burden disease. Yeah. Is that something that you want, you know? I think so. I mean, I think that is the supposed oncologic advantage that you can have tumor control on the right side while you're inducing hypertrophy on the left. And then the other advantage, like I said, is the technical part wherein you will not have portal vein plugs causing deaths with plastic reaction for your portal vein dissection during a second stage hepatectomy. The issue is ultimately just the dosing. I think if you interviewed uh, 50 interventional radiology faculty, they would give you 50 different doses they'll use. And uh, I'm not sure that every surgeon orders why not even knows what dose is being given. So I think that's an important distinction um, that is a lot of uh, kind of random doses being given across the United States. So before we do a trial, we certainly need to come to some agree general agreement of what dosage to consider. Hmm. There's a difference in the dose delivered to the to all the parenchyma versus to like a tumor as yeah. well, right? So how are you guys yeah. looking at that? No, that's a great question. Uh, yes. So uh, from our anecdotal experience, when you do a right hemi liver Y90, when we take the explant out, the resection um, specimen, we um, carve through it. The tumor viability is like a spectrum. So there are deeper parts of it that got more Y90 where it's like 1% viable, while closer to the middle hepatic vein, it's still sometimes 20 to 30% viable. And that makes a lot of sense, right, in terms of how much Y90 works. So, so for part of this trial, this is a secondary endpoint, we will slice up the tumors to check the viability on a tumor map. So we'll map it out, and with the, and the, with the, uh, me, with the pathologist, we'll cut out the different tumors and see how far, how, how far they are from the middle hepatic vein. Where are you at in, this, in the process of this trial, just out of curiosity? Our uh, second patient got Y90 today. Um, so those, this is the first two in the Bayesian step up. So we have to make sure that their dose limiting toxicity is not reached with their bilirubin. And once they're cleared um, this summer, we have a third patient lineup for July already. So once we kind of get that first two for safety down, then we can move up to the next dose escalation.
And, and, and this is only colorectal? Correct. Right now it's colorectal liver map, but you can see this potentially working for um, single stage yeah. surgery for other types of cancer too. But yeah. And to be clear, the dosages in a step up portion of this Bayesian design are all within the realm of standard of care doses. Yeah. So it's not like we're necessarily giving doses that would have the potential for a liver insufficiency. Is that correct? Correct. correct. Yeah. These are all doses well below these maximum doses that people throw in 60, 80, and 100. Uh, some interventional radiologists call that kind of chicken doses, but I think that uh, we're doing safe doses to see what kind of KGR we'll get to as a secondary endpoint. We want to certainly prove safety, but we're not trying to cause any irreversible damage. The nice thing about this protocol too is that, um, of course, just like we use Y90 off protocol to rescue PVE, we could still do PVHV to rescue these patients if they don't grow enough. How long do you have to wait to go to resection? And this is uh, maybe timing after Y90, right? It's an, another, yes. it's a very wide range of month, maybe eight months, six months. Exactly. So in this protocol, we go to surgery between six and eight weeks. We do the kinetic growth rate between four and six weeks and we do the surgery between six and eight. It's maybe two weeks later than we would do for PVE, but it's still closer than when we do it off protocol. When we do it off protocol, what will often happen is that we'll let it cook for 12 weeks. And sometimes during a time where it's quote unquote cooking and working, uh, we might uh, sneak in the primary section even. Uh, so we've done that before and then do the second stage later if we feel very comfortable that we're gonna be able to do it. But in this protocol, we wanted, we we're trying to create a paradigm that is similar to PVE. We're trying to set up, you can see the next step is that multi-center mm -hmm. trial where you compare PVE to Y90, but you have to be able to compare apples to apples. You have to compare KGR at the same time frame. You have to compare all the CT scans at the same time frame. So that's why we're setting it up in that timing. But it's been, um, it's been uh, published about, uh, you know, uh, too early can be can be cause morbidity and mortality in a Y90 surgery, right? Well, we're we're going to be removing the part that got Y90, right? We're not we're not this is not bilateral Y90 that we're cutting through, nor is it partial hepatectomy in a person who got Y90, right? If you got Y90 to your right hemi liver, you probably don't want to be cutting through the right hemi liver, right? We're going to take out that whole side, and I think six to eight weeks should be safe. Um, at that point in time, right? We're not going in, yeah, we're not going in two weeks later or anything like that. This is not a hurry, right? We're trying to get maximum growth, but not wait to 12 weeks necessarily because it wouldn't be a fair comparison. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, we're just thinking about that the median median time, waiting time in uh, uh, what is, I, I read it been published is uh, six, eight months. Yeah, and um, because that's because a lot of the- They, they do partial? Well, no, the retrospective papers that have been put together are just assembled for people who had salvage Y90, right? So that's another thing about this protocol. These are people who are intent for surgery. We are planning for surgery with their Y90. This is not like, oh, well, we don't know if this is gonna happen. Let's do Y90 and just see what happens. And then you find out eight months later, hey, this is all the disease they have left over. Let's take them to surgery. See, it's a very different process. This is not a rescue. And no systemic chemo during the six to eight weeks? Right. No systemic therapy, just yeah. like we wouldn't do for PV or HVE. Mm -hmm. uh, we do have a intervals, labs, and all that. So if their CEA were to start growing, going up or their scans show 
progression in extra hepatic sites than we would do our standard of care, which would be to sometimes put them back on a few doses of chemo to get the extra hepatic sites under control. That could be the primary tumor. That could be one or two lung spots or something like that. Get it under control before we go back in for surgery. Mm. You don't you don't exclude any patient with uh, different somatic mutation. I don't know bad mutation KRAS TP53. Are you trying to exclude those patients, saying that they all go wrong with yeah. whatever we use? Yeah, not not right now because because it's a phase one study. We're looking at the um, safety, the safety, and of course as a secondary endpoint clinically, we're looking at the growth and all that. So we're not excluding people based on their mutation status. Although I think that is important for counseling um, in terms of um, a person's progression, because as we know, certain mutation status are less likely to make it a second stage, more likely to progress, right? Mm. Well, really highly anticipated results here. Um, and I think this is going to be a, a tremendous contribution um, and exciting for patients to have multiple options for hypertrophy. We'll learn more about the doses for um, treatment with this intent, intent with Y90 which can be useful both in a salvage situation or upfront, obviously. So um, kudos to you for getting this off the ground and hopefully we can get this moving um, faster for um, everyone out there looking for this as an option for treatment. So at the end of our, at the end of our podcast here, I know we've, we've taken up a lot of your time. So thank you very much for, for being so generous with it. But at the end of our podcast here, we'd love to give you the floor to anything you'd like to, to finish up on or anything you want to, um, say to the HPBA membership who are listening today? Well, I think that uh, the future is bright for HPB surgery. I think we have a lot of great senior leaders and up-and-coming leaders and great fellows as well in HPBA. Um, I think it's one of the most exciting organizations because we're always looking to the future. I think we have more commonality than differences, and sometimes, unfortunately, we focus on some of our differences, but we should focus rather on our commonalities and where we can go together. I think the biggest issue, in my opinion, in the United States and in the, I would say, in the Western world where HPBA has a lot of um, input is still patient safety. Um, we talk a lot about fancy technical things. We have fancy robots and fancy energy devices, but let's not forget that the mortality rate for Whipple procedure is still seven to 9%. And that for certain types of major hepatectomy, it can be up to 10% for hydrocholangio, 13% with benchmarking. These are unacceptable levels, in my opinion, in 2023. We have to work together and figure out how we can improve safety. It doesn't mean necessarily operating on less patients, but it may mean optimizing them. It may be doing more technically complex, but lesser operations in terms of parenchymal sparing. These are all things we have to work together in, in HPBA. And I'm hoping that in our new generation of teaching, like the grain rounds, the video assessments, things like that, we can focus on that. So our next generation really focuses and uses the technology we have and the planning we have to improve patient safety. Because what's funny is we spend billions of dollars on drugs that improve uh, life uh, overall survival by a few weeks. But you know, the main thing that's going to improve survival in surgery will be improve the first tick on the Kaplan-Meier curve, and that's survival from surgery. If we could focus on that we'd have a huge gap up in our survival. But thank you for this time. I really appreciate talking with y'all and catching up with y'all.